afternoon. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, we are recording this on Saturday, August the 5th, 2023. You are listening on Sunday, August the 6th, 2023, and it will be rebroadcast on Monday, August the 7th at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. My name is Jasmine, and this week I have um, Janet, who was with us last week. Hi, Janet. Hey there. And Matthew, who was here before, but it's been a minute. Hi, Matthew. Hello, everybody. Yeah, I think I was away for a month at least, I think. Yes, it's been a minute, but we're happy to have you back. And I don't think the two of you have been on at the same time. No. Yeah. Should be interesting conversation. Yeah, well, we hope nothing comes out and we all end up like (laughs) fighting like dogs. That would be unfortunate, (laughs) but... Um, I mean, I'm I'm up for it. I'll I'll fight. <laughs> oh yeah, I I know how, how you get down. Uh huh. Uh-huh. But um, I think we're we're all on the same page about most stuff that matters. So hopefully, it yeah. won't come to that <laughs> in the summer heat. All right. So on this week's episode for local news, we'll be talking about the stabbing death of um, O'Shea Sibley in Brooklyn. For National News, we'll be discussing the potential for lab-grown meat. And for World News, we'll be discussing um, global uh, coral reef health or problems with uh, coral reef health. Uh, So to get started, I'll be doing the local news. Um, This information comes from three different articles. Uh, One is NBC Philadelphia by Rana Novini and Tracy Strahand and Hayden Mittman and Karen Hua. They killed him right in front of me. Friends mourn dancer stabbed at NYC gas station. The New York Times article by Maria Kramer and Wesley Parnell, man fatally stabbed in confrontation as he danced at a gas station. Uh, And from Time Magazine, what to know about the fatal stabbing of O'Shea Sibley by Sonia Mansour and Solcier Berga. Uh, So as I said, this is a mix of information from those three sources. Uh, O'Shea Sibley, 28, worked professionally as a dancer in New York and Philadelphia and belonged to several dance troupes in the region. He was voguing and dancing to music from Beyonce Saturday night, uh, this is in late July, when he was approached by a group of men who witnesses have said told him to stop. Witnesses have said that the group didn't like that Sibley and his friends were dancing and started making derogatory comments about them being gay. According to Sibley's friend, Kamar Jewell, a 31-year-old choreographer and director, both Mr. Sibley and Otis Pena told the group, stop saying that there is nothing wrong with being gay. Mr. Sibley fought with them and he was stabbed as Otis Pena ran to intervene, Mr. Jewell said. Sami Ula, an employee of the store next to the gas station, told Gothamist that Sibley and his friends were approached by a group of men who said the dancing offended their Muslim faith. These people were like, we're Muslim, I don't want you dancing, Ula told Gothamist, adding that Sibley and his friends were not trying to fight. Later, police said a 17-year-old in a black shirt and red shorts pulled out a knife and stabbed Sibley in the chest. Police say the killing is being investigated as a potential hate crime. At a Brownsville building, and for those not familiar, Brownsville is a neighborhood in in Eastern Brooklyn. 
where Sibley lived alone in a studio, his neighbor, Breckenbar Hamilton, age 51, said he had warned the younger man against being so open about his sexuality. Mr. Hamilton, who was also gay, recalled attacks he had suffered in his 20s when going out to clubs and said that he has recently been overhearing comments on the streets about, quote unquote, all these rights gay people have. O'Shea wasn't being a wasn't afraid of being who he was, Mr. Hamilton said. He would defend his friends. They loved dancing outside and delighted in drawing a crowd. But I'd see how people looked at them, Mr. Hamilton said. There was a worry in the back of my mind. There's no progress. We live here in a community where we have to pretend to be somebody else, Hamilton said. In his video, Mr. Pena described Mr. Sibley as his brother and said the two were always out and loud. We as a community don't deserve this, Mr. Pena said. We may be gay, but we exist. We're not going to live in fear. We're not going to live hiding. Jamichael Darnell, who works at Ailey Extension uh, as an Alvin Ailey, performed with Sibley at the Ailey Spirit Gala in May at Jazz at Lincoln Center and took jazz classes with him. He also admired his friend's skill. O'Shea would always have an extra flair in his turns or his kicks. He gracefully moved across the floor and it was a beautiful sight to see, Darnell says. There are so many students in that class that were in awe of O'Shea and the way he moved. He was often used as an example for the instructor to kind of teach us. Um, and on their Facebook page, the um, Ailey organization posted the following. The Ailey organization mourns the tragic death of O'Shea Sibley following an attack outside of a Brooklyn gas station on Saturday night. O'Shea was a cherished and devoted Ailey Extension student. He had incredible energy in the studio and was loved by instructors and fellow classmates. We are shocked and heartbroken that O'Shea's life has been taken by senseless violence and extend our sincere condolences to his family and loved ones. So, um, yes, it was a very, you know, horrific and very sad story that unfolded in this past week, um, just, you know, for being openly gay, dancing on a late Saturday night like young people do. And now he's dead at the hands of a 17-year-old who somehow, you know, developed these bigoted views. It's just incredibly sad. Very sad. And, you know, last week we highlighted an instance where a local yoga studio in Brooklyn had a swastika and, mess, you know, hateful anti-Semitic messaging. And now this with a, a tragic death of someone for just being a gay person in New York City. And both stories, I think, are just reminders that we still have a long way to go in protecting people of our city and people of the world. Uh, yeah, this is like just horrifically tragic. Um, when I first saw it come out, um, I, I heard about it, I think, fairly quickly. Um, but I also, um, I believe it was yesterday, Friday evening, um, there was a large gathering, um, in, as a vigil, um, for O'Shea, uh, where he was stabbed. They went back to the gas station. Uh, and from what I saw on social media, it was a pretty large gathering. Um, there was a lot of voguing, 
uh, and dancing and celebration of the art and of O'Shea and I think of Black queer joy and grief. Um, that was really lovely to see, but for an unfortunate reason. Uh, and it really just demonstrated like, how, how it feels like a backslide in our current time um, of where we were going. Where even like when same sex marriage was passed, like the, all that, like it felt it felt like there was momentum growing, and then there's this sudden whiplash back that's really hurting, hurting a lot of communities. Um, it's tied in with the anti-trans panic. Um, there's moral panic. They want to ban TikTok. They want to ban books, and it's all related. It's all rooted in racism. Like we've seen these things come through. It's queer phobia. It's transphobia. Um, and they're all linked together, and it's really oppressing us, um, and it's taking it out on so many people. Um, yeah, it's it's unfortunate. Yeah, and there was also a vigil at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village, um, and I'm sure there were many other events, like other gatherings outside of New York City, um, because this isn't just a New York City problem, and... Um, you're right that these these issues are all linked together. And I do feel that it's important to remember that this was a homophobic act of violence. Like he was murdered because he was, you know, an openly gay man just living his life and not, you know, as his neighbor said, not pretending to be someone else. And he was murdered for that. Um, but he was also a darker skinned black man. And that also plays a part in how people will view who is like disposable or who they think they can buck up at and become violent with. Um, and I feel like this was a, a cross between those two issues, especially in that community um, and who the assailants were in this case. Like you have the queer phobia and also the anti-blackness coming together. And this is the result. Um, and yeah, I, I agree with you. It does, I, I don't think it feels like a backslide. It is a backslide and like a yeah. big um, backlash or a white lash against all these things that I think people our age may have taken for granted that we wouldn't be going back to having to worry about certain things, but they're coming mm-hmm. back in a big way. And for the killer to be 17, I think it needs to, the notion that everything is just a matter of time needs to be put to rest because it's really not that simple uh these attitudes they come from somewhere and people do pass them on to those younger than them it's not automatic that just because someone is young they're going to be progressive or open and accepting like it's an ongoing type of work to cultivate that openness and that acceptance yeah and the one thing that like one thing that was being a gay, a lot of the people I follow on social media are also gay. Um, I was seeing like a lot of these odd messages from white gay or non-black gays that were like, I don't, even in New York City, I don't feel safe. I'm like, you are still a little white twink. Shut the fuck up. Like you're centering the wrong thing. You don't know what you're talking about. There is anti-blackness at play. And if you're both of those identities, if you carry both of those identities, that is going to like an imp double impact. The idea of intersectionality is just missed by a lot of people or just misunderstood maybe. But yeah, I think that's right. Like being a dark skinned black man 
absolutely was at the forefront of the attack. Um, and as Janet also mentioned, the story you covered last week with the swastika being painted, like the it's the white lash, yeah, and it's it's scary. And more people need to start speaking up, getting involved wherever you can. But I mean, they're also protected by our military militarized police, so it's I don't know what to do sometimes, and it gets very like um paralyzed with things but trying to find community um and maintain that community and make sure everyone in that community is supported um is a small step i think we can take yeah it's really important to have solidarity in these situations and i think it's great that jasmine's chose to highlight the local stories like like these on her program because sometimes these seem like stories that might happen in other places or other environments but to feel that shake here in new york city it just reminds us we can't be complacent um matthew brought up a great thing or not a great thing but an important point that you know um politically there's been this anti-trans shift of the overall anti-lgbtq community um from right-wing politics and they're organized and they're all throughout the United States. And it's important that there's pushback from grassroots up to make sure that there's a counter um, to that force that's in America right now. Yeah, absolutely. Like it is important that people are speaking up, getting together, you know, pushing back and not just living in fear, you know, and I, I really, I saw the interview with um, O'Shea's neighbor, the older black man, who's the 50 something year old black man who was also gay and things like that really, it makes it so clear, you know, when you have people that have lived through so much and they survive so much to see them having to kind of relive things that they probably thought or hoped were in the past because they were living through like the earlier waves of this type of violence and to see someone that's at that point in their life still saying and feeling like, you know, we have to be careful. Like you have to kind of be, you know, live a muted version of yourself. It's really, really, really sad. The, when you were reading the neighbor's quotes, Jasmine, um, they, they, brought a little bit up in me. I got a little choked up because it very much, uh, as a fellow gay man and not being near the age of the neighbor or an elder in the community or having lived through any horrific kind of trauma around being gay, um, his words, like I could hear what he was saying, the idea of why that occurs for people. Um, being a married, younger gay man um, my husband and I, I'm from the Southwest, he's from uh, Central Texas, but we're often very wary of if we're ever showing affection, PDA, like it's not within our natural instinct to, to engage in that. Um, and it's an instinct of survival, as he was kind of alluding to, um, unfortunately for a lot of people, and probably maybe even a lot of us unconsciously or subconsciously, when these things happen, it, it does reinforce those fears of why you have to take survival instincts in areas. Uh, and it's important, even in these quote-unquote liberal blue cities, 
they're liberal to, I guess, a very average degree. But when you're on the streets by yourself, what does that mean? It doesn't really mean much. So listening to the people who have been through this, that you have to hear what they're saying. It, it sometimes took hiding yourself to survive and to even get where they are now. And yeah, I think it's just an important thing that people may not always think about, especially living here in New York City. We do have to have, you know, solidarity across groups. We are more powerful like in bigger numbers. If we show up for one another when these things happen, like that's absolutely important. But, um, you know, rest in peace to O'Shea. Just terrible that his life ended the way that it did. And you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, For our first musical break, this is Break My Soul from Beyonce. I wanted to pick this one because O'Shea and his friends were dancing to um, Beyonce's latest album, Renaissance, when they were attacked. Um, And her album is uh, a tribute to the contributions of um, Black queer creators in uh, the history of dance music.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Matthew with our national news story. Hello, everybody. Um, This is a little bit of an older article from January 26, 2023, but it's from MotherJones.com. It's by Oliver Millman. And it's entitled, My Vegetarian Dilemma, Tasting Lab-Grown Meat from Live Animals. Is this the future of ethical eating? Uh, It was originally published by The Guardian, um, but I found it on Mother Jones. It was a comforting moment for a vegetarian. First, a pork meatball and then slices of bacon balanced in a sort of mini BLT were were served to eat by beaming expectant hosts. The meat even came from a from a named pig, an affable-looking swine called Don. With some, with some trepidation, I sliced into the meatball and ate it. I then took a nibble of the bacon. It was my first taste of meat in 11 years, a confounding experience made possible by the fact that Don, gamboling in a field in upstate New York, did not die for this meal. Instead, a clump of her cells were grown in a lab to create what's known as cultivated meat a product touted as far better for the climate as well as the mortal concerns of pigs and cows and is set to take and is set for takeoff in the US a harmless sample from one pig can produce many millions of tons of product without requiring us to raise and slaughter an animal each time said Etienne Fisher founder of Mission Barns a maker of cultivated meat that invited the guardian to taste to a taste test in an upscale Manhattan hotel The meatball was succulent, the bacon was crisp, and even to a vegetarian, both had the undeniable quality of meat. We got the sample from Dawn, and she's living freely and happily, said Fisher, whose company has identified a donor cow, chicken, and duck for future cultivated meat ranges. This industry will absolutely be transformative to our food system as people move toward consuming these types of products. Mission Barnes is one of the 80 startup companies based around San Francisco's Bay Area now jostling for position after one of their number, Upside Foods, became their first in the country to be granted approval by the FDA in November, a key step in allowing the sale of cultivated meat in the U.S. On Monday, Upside said it aims to start selling its cultivated chicken in restaurants this year and in grocery stores by 2028. More than $2 billion has been invested in the sector since 2020 and many of the new ventures aren't waiting for regular regulatory approval before building facilities. In December, a company called Believer Meats broke ground on a $123 million facility in North Carolina. It claims will be the largest cultivated meat plant in the world, set to churn out 10,000 tons of products once operational. So far cultivated meat, the so far cultivated meat, the nascent industry settled on this name over lab-grown or cellular meat. Has, I'm sorry, I'm going to start that over. So far, cultivated meat, 
the nascent industry settled on this name over lab-grown or cellular meat, has only started selling in Singapore, where another Bay Area contender called Eat Just was given the green light to sell chicken breasts and tenders in 2020. But the world is experiencing a food revolution, said the FDA, as the FDA put it, with the rise of cultivated meat handling, the promise of slashing the meat industry's ruinous planet heating emissions and shrinking its voracious appetite for land, as well as sparing livestock the barbarity of factory farming. We know we can't really hit the goals in the Paris Climate Agreement without addressing meat consumption, and we think alternative proteins are the best way to address that, said Elliot Swartz, lead scientist on cultivated meat at the Good Food Institute, the GFI, who envisions a sort of all-the-above approach where cultivated meat, plant-based offerings like Impossible Burgers, and simply giving up the pork chops and steaks help soften the impact of a growing and potentially disastrous global appetite for meat. The rising and slaughter of livestock is responsible for more than half of the greenhouse gas pollution of the entire food sector, which in itself is estimated to contribute around a third of total global emissions. Faced with the need to reach peak meat, cultivated meat has been pushed forward as a solution as it can cut emissions by around 17% for chicken and up to 92% for beef, the meat that weighs heaviest on the planet, GFI's research has found. Um, I'm going to jump down a little bit to get to some of the more interesting questions that emerge. Um, but you can always go to motherjones.com um, and read from there. Um, many of the emerging cultivated meat ventures have some sort of niche companies that aim to sell lab-grown sushi-grade salmon or bluefin, bluefin tuna or even foie gras. And Mission Barnes is one of the efficient is one of efficiency by growing animal fat rather than more laborious and costly muscle and tissue. The fat, which has proteins and seasoning added to it, is created through growing cells in sturdy bioreactors, which replicate the growth of an animal. The use of these cultivators, which are more usually deployed by the biopharmaceutical industry to manufacture drugs, presents an issue for cultivated meat because they typically create small batches at high cost whereas the food industry requires this equation to be reversed. Um, the first lab-grown burger cost $330,000 back in 2013. Um, the price tag has decreased, but still pretty high. Um, and that's kind of where it is. It's kind of weighing the investment in this technology um, that seems to be very efficient uh, and popular versus, well, the earth is burning and beef is really kind of adding to that. So yeah, uh, I think it poses a lot of ethical dilemmas to humanity, um, what we value and what we want to continue to value. I'll say I've been waiting for lab grown meat for a long time. <laughs> I'm mostly a vegetarian, but I do occasionally have chicken. Um, and it, it sounds like they have still a lot to work out with this, but um, can't understate how much um, environmental degradation and influence on climate change the food industry has in clearing landscapes to have cattle roaming, destroying forests, the cattle themselves needing huge amounts of grain to be fed, which also takes up more space, and then... Um, shipping all of the food. So 
you know, if we could be on a model to push towards something that's very different, you know, it seems like science has a way of, of making improvements and reducing cost over time. We can't stress how dire the situation is to change our ways. So it seems like a very interesting idea. I'm very much a meat eater. Like I pretty much eat meat every day, but I don't like the way we do like factory farming or, you know, even having to kill animals um, for meat. You know, I don't really like it, but I, I hope that this is able to like the cost of it is able to come down so that it could be done more practically across the board. Cause yeah, especially with climate and everything we're in like an emergency situation and, you know, meat farming is a huge part of that issue. Uh, yeah, well, the first, but I don't really watch um, South Park, but I, I saw this one clip. It came across Twitter. I don't care what they're calling it. It's Twitter. Um, the clip was like, can you believe this isn't, uh, they fed the kid a hot dog. And they're like, can you believe this isn't real meat? The kid looks over like, yes. <laughs> like, that that initially that was my thought of what like lab grown meat might taste like but uh yeah i think this is a positive trend um look the silicone bros are going to throw their money at something let's make it worthwhile for humanity um because they're not doing great otherwise um i come up from a very meat heavy area of the country dairy farms surrounded my home um you would grow the corn to feed the cows. Then there's the butchering. Um, but I, so I also, I'm a meat consumer, but if there are alternatives, like I think that's very interesting um, and good. I think the trouble really is going to probably come from dairy lobbyists. Um, this country loves staying on the same course, even if it's leading us over the cliff. Um, that's going to be a real struggle for the industry. I'm sure. Um, and I know Congress is not ready to, I don't know. I, I, I do see some struggles for them in terms of getting approval and stuff. Um, but we do need to change our ways um, because it's not working. Um, the summer has been awful here in the city. The heat dome that got trapped in the Southwest. Um, and I think Janet's going to have a story for us about even bigger ramifications of these things. Yeah, and I, I think, um, Matthew, one of the things you mentioned about the, you know, what the mood will be in America in reaction to the idea of lab-grown meat, um, you know, I can, there's always this kind of voice in American culture that's like aggressive about eating hamburgers made from a cow and never wanting to give that idea up and building kind of on some of the discussion Jasmine and I had last week about, um, you know, ideological movements where people, they don't want science to be involved in their lives in any way to the point where there's a movement where people don't want their milk pasteurized because they failed to see what value that's had for us, even though at this point we know it, you know, makes our milk safe. So I could see a huge uh, population of Americans who just no matter how it tastes or how it's presented, or even if the cost could be reduced, the idea that it's it's not slaughtering an animal will be upsetting to them and they won't get on board. Yeah, we're in a very big anti-science move as well. Again, tying back to all the other problems, but 
you know, literacy issue, books being banned, and just like not understanding science. Um, it's a little concerning because I, if these people are pro life, they might want to start saving the planet that they want that life to exist on. I don't know. The sad thing is a lot of the people we have to be the most concerned about are actually actively planning for and wanting to foment like different types of collapse, including climate collapse. But that being said, like, I I do feel like, yeah, you're absolutely right. And like, there are people who are already claiming falsely that like, yeah, lab grown meat is already here. And like, they're taking pictures of like meat that they got from the supermarket, but because they don't understand like basic things about like the way the meat looks and it is from a real animal, they're claiming <laughs> that it's from a lab anyway. <laughs> like, it's like just bad meat or soy product. And they're like, what is this? I'm like, that's not meat, buddy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's concerned. Now I, I, I see that those links all the time. Like, I think, yeah, you're right. Like this, you hear about like um, very wealthy people creating all these like bunkers and like these technologies. And it's like, they're preparing for the collapse, whether or not they're telling you they are and whatever they're selling, you may not suggest such, but they're very much prepared because while they have all the resources in the world, we don't. There's this clip where Jamie Oliver, the, that British chef, he's like, in an, he's like, I'm going to cook good food for these American children. And so he shows them, these are like six-year-olds. And he's like, and this is how they make the chicken nuggets. And it was like the grinded up stuff. And all the kids are like, ew, ew. And then he makes like this healthy, sub, this thing, and then he feeds them the and then at the end, it's like, okay, so who still wants to eat the chicken nuggets? And all of their hands go up. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> the process, make, the process adds a little like, bit of zest. I want that chicken nugget. <laughs> at the end of the day, I don't think most people really think too hard about it. So I'm like, you know what? Let's just, just do it. Don't even tell me. Just do it. Yeah, people don't know what's in their food anyway. Like if you ask, say like if if people are worried about the lab grown meat, if they actually saw start to finish what happens to the cow, I I mean they say that there could be hundreds of cows in one burger because if they grind them all together, and it's so yeah. And where do these diseases around the world come from? They come from the meat industry, you know. I know. Yeah. Like, you know what? It's just, it's like putting, what do they say? There's fluoride in the water. Like, just just start doing it. Like, how we pasteurize the milk. Like, just like, yep. be like, okay, yeah. Just put, just slap a raw label <laughs> on it. <laughs> like, like, what? Raw organic milk. I mean, yeah, that would be nothing new for the food industry, right? Like, all those terms. Right. Prebiotic. They like, they make up stuff all the time. That sounds like whatever people want to believe. <laughs> Yeah, like there was this sign outside of this um, shop in the village, and it was like, cocaine is gluten-free too. Like, don't be tricked Amen. by these buzzwords. <laughs> well, yeah, I like all the influence. Like, there's like all these um, water influencers on TikTok, and they're like, this water is like magnetized. It's better. And people are like, oh, you're an idiot. That's just water. <laughs> you're just paying $20 for a bottle of water. Or is there... There's like peanut butter now where they put like a green label on it and it's like natural peanut butter. And then you turn the back and it's all full of sugar. 
anyway. And it's like, yeah, well, we, we did had a green label. <laughs> we need to start reverse engineering. Like, just do the reverse. Like, yeah. start doing the good and be like, America's choice or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like that would go, that would be successful. You just need to know how to market. Definitely. <laughs> All right, so our next um, for our next musical break, this is "I Follow Rivers" by Likey Lee. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and here's Janet with our world news story. So I'm going to be focusing on um, how global warming that's caused by climate change is affecting the oceans, and then at the end, jumping specifically into how it affects the coral reefs. I'm drawing my information from a couple different articles. One is from the NASA Global Climate Change website. That's climate.nasa.gov. It's called Vanishing Corals. NASA data helps to track coral reefs. Published by Dr. Angela Colbert on June 22nd of this year. Um, And that website actually has a lot of different resources if anyone's interested in um, looking up information about other aspects of climate change as it's monitored by NASA. Um, The other two articles I'm drawing from are New York Times articles. One is called The Ocean's Dire Message by David Gellis and Manuela Andrioni, published on August 3rd of this year. And the other is called A Desperate Push to Save Florida's Coral, Get It Out of the Sea by Katrine Einhorn, 
July 31st of this year. So just to give a little bit of background, the Earth's surface is covered by 70% water. So long story short, water has this great power to absorb heat um, and not change temperature as quickly as the air. And on a global scale, um, we can experience that um, in the New York City area by thinking about how um, our, our climate in this region is um, moderated by the oceans that surround the city because it takes a long time over the course of the summer for the sea temperature to rise and that warmth is held on for a long time um, even into the winter months that make our winters a little bit less cold than other parts of the countries that don't have big bodies of seawater next to them. So thinking about the world, um, all of this climate change that's been a, um, caused by industrial activity from the 19th century and increasingly onwards has been by and large absorbed into the oceans with little change. But we've recently reached a threshold where now the sea is no longer able to just absorb the heat. It's actually starting to rise in temperature itself. World records are being set for the ocean temperatures. Um, the deeper ocean waters have reached a, a level of 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And closer to home in Florida's um, coastal waters, there was actually water that reached 101 degrees Fahrenheit, which is basically like hot tub temperature. So this is gonna have profound impacts for a number of things globally. When the water warms, it actually helps to, of course, melt ice in the polar regions. So it's a feedback loop that's happening and melting ice can actually increase sea levels Hotter oceans has a lot of problems for us. <laughs> um, one of the ones we've maybe all experienced in the Northern Hemisphere is that tropical storms like hurricanes are able to pick up uh, greater speeds as they move across the water and result in greater damage. But the topic I'll, I'll focus on for the second half is um, how the heating temperature actually affects coral reefs. Interestingly, coral reefs um, are only 1% of the ocean floor in the world, but they actually provide home for 25% of ocean life. Um, it can't be stated how important these uh, eco-centers are for life of the ocean. They're actually called the rainforests of the sea. And what is coral? You might not know exactly. You've seen maybe images of it. But coral is actually a living animal. It's not um, an inorganic material. It's, it's a colony of polyps, um, these little tiny animals that actually feed on zooplankton. And then they secrete calcium carbonate as, as a product of what they eat. And that calcium carbonate forms the like skeletal structure that makes up the visual display of reefs that we see. Um, but these reefs provide this ecosystem that builds up all sorts of vibrant life. The three greatest size reefs are the Great Barrier Reef of Australia. Um, there's a Mesoamerican Barrier Reef that is off the coast of Mexico, Belize, Guatemala, and Honduras. 
And then there's the third biggest is our own core, uh, Florida Keys Reef. And you, it can't be stated how many benefits the coral reef actually has to people. Um, the coral reef provides basically protection of our land from dangerous hurricanes and cyclones in the southern hemisphere. It, it basically softens the impact of waves coming to the land. Um, the diversity of life that it harvests is um, a source of medicine, just like you might have heard about rainforests. And it just it sustains so much of the sea life that we obviously are as humans, we eat tons of fish. And all, a lot of this, the fish that grow from the sea are um, connected to this, these 1% coral reefs that are all around the world. So millions of people depend on uh, seafood that comes from the coral reefs. And if you need a, a number value, one of the articles stated that uh, it benefits humans by $2.7 trillion a year. <laughs> so with these rising temperatures, um, we've started since the 1950s and even earlier, we've seen um, destruction of the coral reefs. But this year, between the rising temperatures and the presence of a natural system called El Nino, there's been a number of cases where the coral reefs have been destroyed overnight. So normally what happens is the temperatures cause algae to leave the coral and then the coral is very vulnerable and dies soon after. But in the case of somewhere like the Florida Keys, um, the high temperatures actually devastated entire colonies in one night. And the article that was about scientists from the Florida Keys highlighted how there's this um, incredible effort to try and take cuttings of the corals of all different species to save them as a gene bank because the situation is so dire where they don't even know um, if they'll be able to prevent 99% um, of the coral from dying since uh, the global temperature has already risen over one degree Celsius. And all it will take to destroy almost all of the coral of the world is for the seawaters to rise up to two, two degrees Celsius. So sorry for that very dark, um, depressing article, but I think it's really important to highlight this because this may seem like something you might never have been snorkeling in your life. You might never have seen a coral reef. You didn't realize maybe how much it impacted um, you in your own life, but um, they are important. They do. And this is another screaming call um, where we really need to think about climate change and, and back to Matthew's article, make the changes we can in our own life to try to reduce the greenhouse gases that are causing all this phenomenon. Yeah, very bleak. Um, but I mean, I think there are a lot of good scientists and people putting in work and a lot of activists. Um, it feels like if I was a scientist, I would have just gone mad because I feel like so many people have been screaming about this for so long. Um, and as soon as like one kind of system is affected, like it impacts all the other systems it touches like coral reefs affect the areas around it. We see shorelines um, falling. Um, I, I, a small kind of, as you were talking about uh, ocean temperatures, Janet, I was thinking, so I went 
to Austin, to somewhere to see family. Um, and my in-laws, they have a pool in their yard. And because the frost occurred in Texas, they had some trees there and the tops died because of the frost. So a lot of shade is missing. So now the pool they have heats up and the water sits at like 90 degrees. Uh, but immediately I was like, just any kind of impact on the area, like there are other repercussions that people are just not paying attention to. Um, and I think there's a lot of calls for change, lack of, or, or a removal of dependency on fossil fuels. Um, it is. It was also fascinating being in the Southwest as you drive seeing the wind turbines that are providing a lot of energy next to like the um i guess it's like oil fracking like pumping oil out of the ground and the juxtaposition of that is just it's very american isn't it it feels very ridiculous (laughs) yeah i mean I, i think it's i'm glad that you explained things like what is coral and what lives in the coral and what depends on these systems has I think one of the hallmarks of what we're seeing these days is just massive amounts of like, not only ignorance, but arrogance about thinking that you can make all of these changes to the natural world and somehow it's not going to affect you, you know, and just not understanding how fragile and like how delicate these balances are and how the impacts snowball over time when any one of those things is thrown out of whack. And, you know, one of our biggest obstacles is like the people that are in charge of, you know, all these major decisions that determine things that have to do with what, where does the water go? You know, there's places in the world running out of drinkable water, including parts of the United States. Like there's, you know, fossil fuels still drilling happening, you know, a lot of the people making those decisions either don't understand or they don't care to understand, you know, what they're destroying when they're making these decisions. And, you know, it's up to us if we want to have a livable future to put an end to it, like some way, somehow, because, you know, it's going to be, there's going to be an end put to it. And we can either understand that now and try to manage it or just deal with, you know, the fallout of when it comes to like a very scary, violent, abrupt stop. And I don't, I don't think any of us want to see the latter happen. Absolutely. And it sounded like the scientists who specifically work on coral, for them, you know, I'm sure they were always in tune with the dangers of climate and how it was in fact impacting what they're working on. But the article described them of sobbing and not being able to conduct interviews without heaving cries because they had been actively trying to create nurseries all through the Keys in this case. And those efforts were destroyed in one night. And so, you know, they didn't think that the bleaching effect could be so sudden. And in this case, it didn't even seem to be bleaching. It just seemed the temperatures instantaneously killed the coral. Um, but it was interesting too, that the, one of the articles put a dollar amount, um, onto it because as we know, a lot of argument about not, you know, the people dragging their feet or putting up violent, uh, you know, blocks to making changes that are climate aware and sustainable. Usually their reasoning has to do with money, 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 industry, industry, and industry. 
And the article highlighted how, you know, this protection of the coastline, this um, source of food, like, like, I think people don't really understand coral being like the fish that you eat, like this all, like Matthew was getting at these, this is an ecosystem, like, you mess with this one thing. And like, it could mean people don't eat seafood anymore. And then there's, there's things that then eat that, that then can't eat. You know, it's like, we're part of a chain, you know, and people, there's a lot of people that do not understand that they don't, they don't think about it, but you can't just delete something from the planet and feel like, oh, it's not going to affect me. Like it's, it's not possible. We live in a fishbowl where every action has a reaction that reverberates. I think at one point, that I think is important in all this is also um, when you have the state government working against also the protection of land and like preservations and the health of the planet. Um, Not easy to keep maintaining any of that. So I'm sure these researchers are under immense pressure and stress um, and uh, probably just like people who want to destroy their work because it's not in their interest. Yeah, we're definitely living in, you know, people digging their heels in and heads in the sand and like this anti-intellectualism, anti-science climate that we're seeing is really, it's dangerous for all of us and the effects are going to come for all of us some sooner than later, but they're coming and they're already here. Um, If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend watching the documentary Merchants of Doubt that came out in 2014. And it, it talks about um, the pro-smoking lobby, but also um, the pro-fossil fuels lobby and the people that make it their business to sow confusion about climate change and the causes of it. It's extremely important. Uh, I think there's a lot of parallels with what we see today and also what we're seeing right now with the ongoing COVID pandemic. Like these are big, big problems. There's things we can and should do that are possible, but you have powerful people who for ideological reasons, even though they know better, like they are motivated by, like Janet was saying, like money and politics and being like ideologically opposed to large government action and regulation. And that's why there these people are like single-handedly like condemning us to all of these feedback loops of damage and in this article in in some sense one uh positive thing was there was a local fisherman who was interviewed for the article and he um you know he changed his efforts from fishing to being a volunteer for helping with one of the coral projects because he could see you know, through that experience, um, at first, maybe fishermen are, you know, it's, it's hard because they're finding less fish and there's a lot of strain on their, their livelihood and and their industry. Um, and a lot of people are not in the position to switch to be a volunteer for something. But I think that firsthand encounter, which we're all experiencing now, whether it's the forest fire smoke or earthquakes or bigger hurricanes or flooding, this firsthand experience brings it to us where, you know, the oil men and the big government people can keep telling you it's not real. But when when it's you and your life and you, and the danger is for you, how can you avoid it at that point? 
Right. Absolutely. So thanks for that story, Jana. And thank you both for hanging out this afternoon. I appreciate it. It's yeah, always fun. Combo. Thank you, Jasmine. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So you have been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more Brooklyn-based community radio. And this is Ain't It Fun by Paramore. <laughs> it's not that fun living in the real world, but <laughs> we got to take it one day at a time. Uh, have a good rest of your week, uh, and we'll talk to you next Sunday. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs> I don't mind letting you down easy, but just give it time. If it don't hurt now, but just wait, just wait a while. And the big fish in the pond, no more. You were what the feet didn't It's fun.